Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, top of the morning to you, wherever you might be. Of course, it also might not be morning when you're listening to this, but I am recording in the morning, and so it is the top of the morning. So today, what we're going to be looking at is going to be Genesis 6, and we're going to be talking about the situation there, about who the sons of God are, who the Nephilim are, and how that plays into the overall story of Genesis 1 to 11. Now, I love this passage of scripture. It's very, very complex in a lot of people's commentary on it, and I think that simplifying some of the details, talking about the different viewpoints, can be pretty helpful, and so that's what we're going to try to do. We're just going to try to give a broad survey of what's going on, the different views that people have, and then try to incorporate it into how I think the biblical narrative is using this material to further its proclamation of God and his plan. So I'm just going to read the passage so it's in our minds, and I'll read from the ESV here. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, it says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now, would I take that uh, 120-year reference there? We won't talk about this on the episode that much. But instead of seeing that as the lifespan of each man, I think it's more appropriate to see that as the time frame before the flood. So in other words, God is saying 120 years and then the flood will come. Instead of saying that each person is going to live 120 years. Because even after the flood, there were people who lived past 120 years. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. And then verse 4 finishes uh, this small section saying, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, and men of renown. Alright, so setting the context here, one of the things we need to remember is that chapter 6 doesn't occur in a vacuum. We have a a lot of information up to this point. In fact, we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2 that God creates everything, and according to Genesis 1, everything is created good. In fact, in verse 31, we read the phrase that God saw that it was very good. So everything was created great. Uh, In Genesis 1 and 2, mankind rebels and ruins it in Genesis 3. Yet, even though man deserves death, and even though man is in one sense, alienated from God, God himself promises a individual in Genesis 3.15 who is going to come and rectify the relationship between God and man. In other words, there will be reconciliation because of God's own plan. So there's going to come an individual who will bruise the serpent, crush the serpent on the head, and the serpent will bruise him on the heel, this special individual, this redeemer, we could call him. And so all the way in Genesis 3.15, we see that God has a plan of redemption set up for his people, even though they had rebelled against him. Now, Genesis 4 and 5 begin to fill in the details a little bit, showing that mankind 
is incapable of pursuing that reconciliation on their own. In fact, mankind descends further into sin in Genesis 4. You have the first murder, Cain kills Abel, and in so doing shows that this is going to be a long, drawn-out struggle, and there's going to be lots of sin and lots of consequences because of the original sin of Adam and Eve. And then, of course, you have Genesis 5, which details over and over and over the fact that those who come on the scene die. And that repetitious phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, comes up over and over and over again, showing that because of sin, there are consequences now. Although you do have the interesting story of Enoch in Genesis 5, where Enoch walked with God, and he was not because God took him. Well, what that seems to indicate is that there is a possibility that God can triumph over death. In other words, death isn't the absolute result because God has the ability to triumph over that. And so there's a little bit of a foreshadowing there with the power of God and how his plan of reconciliation will work uh, with mankind. And so when we get to Genesis 6 then, there is... There is basically one lingering question in our minds, and that's how is this plan of redemption going to work? Is is it going to work? And how is mankind going to operate within that sphere? Are they going to uh, help out in any way with that? Th- those are those are the thoughts that revolve in our minds. And so when we think about the context here, when we're brought into Genesis 6, we we are introduced to this group because mankind begins to multiply on the face of the land, which we would expect given all the generations that come. And just as a side note, by the way, I think that it's kind of fun to think about that if you calculate all the years in the uh, in the genealogy in Genesis 5, there were plenty of years for multiplication of mankind. And even if you include uh, the allowance for for war, even famine, if that exists at this point, uh, animal uh, violence, all sorts of things that could end the lives of human beings prematurely. If you include all of that, the population of the earth is probably still in the billions somewhere. And so there are probably a lot of people, possibly even more people on the earth at this point than there were than there are currently on the planet. So it's interesting to think about just with the normal rate of reproduction and everything that it's it's possible, at least possible, that there was a very, very significant population on the earth at this time. So the question then is, who are these sons of God? They're kind of introduced out of nowhere in verse 2. It says, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took wives of any they chose. So the three main views here of who the sons of God are are one, they are some sort of king or ruler of that time, and that's regardless of their righteousness or unrighteousness, so just some sort of king or ruler. Uh, The second view would be that it's, and some people would say judges, the second view would be that these are the descendants of Seth, the righteous descendants of, of God, that's why they are referred to as the sons of God. And then the third view would be that these individuals are angels. Now, the main argument for the first view, that the sons of God are kings or rulers or judges, would be from Psalm uh, 82. In Psalm 82, we see a reference there 
In verse 1, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, what some people have said about verse 1 there is that in the midst of the gods, which is the same word Elohim, that has to refer to human judges. And so here we would have an example because if it didn't refer to human judges, that would mean that there were other divine beings that God allows to be involved in the administration and governance of humanity. And so people are hesitant to believe that. However, I think that there's actually no problem with seeing the term Elohim as a reference to other divine beings, whether it be angels or even spirits. For example, when uh, when Saul consults the witch of Endor, uh, the spirit of Samuel comes and she says, I see a Elohim coming up from the ground. That's her reference to Samuel there. And that seems to be just a regular, how you would refer to some sort of spiritual being that you can't really describe in one sense. So there does seem to be a generic meaning of Elohim, which can be a reference to divine beings. And Elohim is also used as a reference to God, clearly, but context would determine that. So Psalm 82 probably isn't a reference to judges. And if it is, it it might be the only reference. There, There's also one in the law that some people point to, but I think there it, it also makes sense as being a reference to God himself and not to divine judges. So I think that's the least likely view. I don't really want to spend too much time on it, but not very many commentators would hold to the fact that it's generic ruler or judge of that time just because the evidence is pretty scant uh, with reference to that. So the two main views then would be that these are descendants of Seth or that they are angels. So in defense of the descendants of Seth view, the immediate context contains a genealogy of Cain in Genesis 4 and a genealogy of Seth in Genesis 5. So what that would mean uh, based on the near context, is that you have the line of Cain, which would parallel with the line of the serpent, as promised in Genesis 3.15, uh, your offspring against her offspring, the line of the woman, which ends up being the descendants of Seth, and the descendants of the serpent, which would be Cain, because God ends up cursing Cain in Genesis 4 because of his actions, and with the same word that the serpent is cursed in Genesis 3, showing that they have a parallel, showing that they have an affinity with one another, that they're on the same team, in other words. And so a lot of people say, well, when you have Cain and Seth compared, well, now you get to Genesis 5, the only way to make sense of the this new scene is by comparing Cain and Seth. And so that's a big contextual argument. And that's, I think, probably the strongest argument for this view is because it is very contextual. So along with that view, then, what some people hold to is that the daughters of men are women that are a part of Cain's line. Now, that's not indicative of this view. It doesn't have to be that way. But some people say, okay, what that means is that if the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, then they have inappropriately joined with the evil line, with the daughters of Cain, as it were. And that's that's an inappropriate uh, intermarriage, and so God judges the world that way. Now, not everyone holds to that, and in fact, it's the best uh, commentators who hold to this view do not hold to that, because the same word for man generically 
in chapter 6, verse 1, Adam is also the word that's referred to in verse 2, the daughters of man, Adam. So it'd be really hard to see a distinction in those two words that are the same. I mean, one refers to humanity, and so the next one would most likely refer to generic humanity. And so when we think of this, it seems that if we're going to take this view that the daughters of men are not going to be a reference to Cain's line, perhaps they're a reference to unbelievers, and so the the descendants of Seth are intermarrying with people who do not hold allegiance to God. That is what most people would hold to. And in further defense of this view, what a lot of people will put forward is that God's people, Israel, are called the Son of God in Exodus 4.22, although I think it's significant there that it's the singular uh, called the Son of God uh, and not the plural. <clears throat> and it's in the context, you have no mention of any judgment on angels. So it's kind of weird, if you will, that humanity is wiped out because of this, but there's no mention of any judgment on angels whatsoever. But I think uh, there is a reason for that, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then finally, some people say that this view makes most sense because it's absurd to think that angels could have sex because they're a spiritual being and sex is a physical act. And so that's that's just something that can't happen. In fact, in Jesus's own words, angels are do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. And so doesn't that mean that they can't have sex? So that's the viewpoint of the fact that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth. Now, the third view, the sons of God are angels, puts forward some interesting evidence. For one, as far as the phrase itself, B'nai Ha-Elohim or B'nai Elohim, uh, in the plural, only refers to angels. And here we have references to Job, Job 1, 6, 2, 1, and 38, 7. So, for example, I'll read uh, Job 2, 1. So, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So, that's a, no doubt, a reference to uh, to angels being the sons of God. Also in verse 7 of Job 38, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There the stars, which are a very common, uh, a very common metaphor or stand in for angelic beings are put in, uh, parallel in, in Hebrew poetry, put in parallel with the sons of God. And so most commentators here acknowledge that sons of God is a reference to angels. So when we think about how this phrase is used in Job, it is very clearly a reference to angelic beings. Now, couple that with the fact that not everyone would agree here, but I think that the book of Job is actually the first book of the Bible written. I think it dates before Genesis, probably somewhere around 1800 B.C., and if that's the case, then this would be something that Israel already had access to as far as knowing who the sons of God are. And I think there's something to be said about that. But even if even if you date Job later than Genesis, which dates to about 1400 BC, then you still acknowledge that this is a common Hebrew phrase, which when used refers to angels. 
Now, this also has support from Ugaritic because in the Ugaritic language, which uh, the evidence comes uh, pre-biblical uh, literature as well uh, and contemporary, contemporaneous with some of it, you have uh, the, the phrase B'nai Elohim, which is a reference to spiritual beings there as well. And then you also have this same belief found in Second Temple Judaism, like in the Book of Enoch and things like that. Uh, you also have the New Testament holding to this view, it seems. Because, and, and here we look at Jude and Second Peter. And in Jude 6, verse 6, you have this reference to the angels. It says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. And then verse 7 says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So in other words, that phrase there, likewise indulged in sexual immorality, is a reference to the angels. So nowhere in scripture is there any reference to angels engaging in sexual immorality unless Genesis 6 fulfills that. And so it seems very strong as far as evidence is concerned for me that this Jude 6 and 7 links this sexual immorality with the angels. And I think that that's a helpful comparison. Also, in 2 Peter chapter 2, you have God giving a sequence of events starting in verse 4 of chapter 2, where he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and that word hell there is the word Tartarus in the Greek, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, and if he rescued righteous Lot, etc., etc., he goes down. Now, notice all of those are, unless the angels are out of order, that's all chronological order. You have Genesis 6, and then you have the flood with preserving Noah, and then you have Sodom and Gomorrah, and then you have rescuing Lot. All of that would be chronological in accordance with Genesis. So it does seem as if Genesis 6 is being heralded here as a reference to angels as well. So 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6 and 7 seem to be a pretty definitive statement on what's going on here. Now, along with that, uh, to the argument that angels cannot engage in sex, I think in Genesis 18, we see that angels, you have the Lord and two other men coming with him. So not all of those can be the Lord, not all of those can be the incarnate uh, or I guess you could say the pre-incarnate uh, version of Christ. That's that's impossible since there are three there. So so two of those have to be angels. So in Genesis 18, we see that angels can eat and do other physical activities. So at least from that perspective, granted, they are spiritual beings, but they can take on the form of physicality. And so if they can do physical activities, it's not impossible that they could have sex. That's that's not absurd to me. They can do other physical activities. Additionally, I'm willing, although I don't think it's necessary, I am willing to admit 
with some others that it could be a form of demonic possession where demons can can possess bodies and empower them and and work through them. That could also be what's going on in Genesis 6, but I don't think that's necessary. But that is the way some people answer that uh, argument of it being absurd. Now, I would also mention that in um, Matthew 22, where Jesus talks about the resurrection and the angels uh, not being given in marriage nor being married, that is a reference to marriage, not a reference to uh, sexual activity. And so I think we could make a distinction there in that he's talking about marriage because that's what they were talking about, this covenant commitment, whose wife will uh, she be in the resurrection since she was married to seven brothers. So contextually, it is true that there is no covenant commitment between the angels in the same way that we observe marriage, obviously. Now, lastly, the reason I don't think angelic judgment is mentioned in Genesis 6 is because it's not the angel's story. And I think that's important is that we need to be careful about putting the paradigm of ex exhaustivity. That's not even a word. Exhaustive nature of description on the Bible. The Bible could say a lot more than it does about everything, right? There, in fact, it's maddening sometimes the details that the Bible leaves out because we want to know things, but we don't need to know all these things. And the key ingredient to understanding Genesis is that it's not a story about the angels. It's not a story even really about humans, although it, it is human beings are definitely included in it. It's really, and at its core, a story about God and his plan. And so we see that play out. God is the main character. He's the one who's introduced in Genesis 1, and he's the one who creates all things. And then he, he's the one who creates mankind, gives them a set agenda, a plan. They fail, and so God intercedes on his own uh, volition, if you will, to save and spare them uh, annihilation. And so it's, it's a story of God interacting with humanity and saving them. And so to exclude details about the angels is not really absurd. I think that's, that makes a lot of sense because we don't, we don't need those details of the angelic judgment. But I would say that it's very nice that we get insight into the angelic judgment in the New Testament. And part of the reason for that, I think, is because when we get to the New Testament, there are versions of angel worship going on and veneration with that. And so it's, it's important to understand that uh, God is superior to the angels, as Hebrews talks about in detail. And God has supreme power over the angelic beings and that he treats with with very, very much a judgmental, holy fervor, those who stray from his, his plan. So I think that all those evidences combined would point to understanding the sons of God as angelic beings. So now the next question would be, who are the Nephilim? So the Nephilim, you can kind of, if you know any Hebrew, you might be able to hear a Nafal kind of idea, Nephalim, Nephalim. And so a lot of people have taken that word, which Nafal means to fall in Hebrew. A lot of people have taken that as meaning the Nephilim mean the fallen ones. And it's, it's an attractive proposal just on the basis of etymology, but there's no real way to verify that the Nephilim is actually derived from the verb itself. 
And in fact, the ancient translations that we have, the Vulgate and the Septuagint, they translate it as gigantes or giant. That's, that's their translation of it. They don't seem to translate it as fallen ones or anything like that. There's, there's no verification that it has to do with being fallen as much as it is a reference to a giant. In fact, this seems to be confirmed in the only other occurrence of this word in Numbers chapter 13. So the context of Numbers 13 is that you have the spying out of the land of Canaan. You have Moses and he sends out the 12 spies. And then obviously, according to the song, 10 were bad and two were good. And you have Caleb and Joshua coming back. And in verse 30, Caleb Caleb quiets the people before Moses. And he says, let us go up at once, occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him in verse 31 say, no, we are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought in verse 32 to Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out and said, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. In other words, he seems to be equating the term Nephilim here with a people of great stature. Now, how do these two passages correlate? Some people say that if this is the same Nephilim, then, well, that would be an indication that maybe the flood wasn't world worldwide. In fact, some uh, commentators uh, said, well, maybe the Nephilim were so high that they waited, you know, through the floodwaters until they receded, you know, okay. That's one interpretation of this. But if you just see Nephilim as a generic term, as a reference for a giant, then this is fine. And this also, I think, makes sense of the terminology that's used in Genesis 6 because it says in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So in other words, it's saying there were giants on those days and there were also giants afterward. And so I think that that's a helpful insight. And and the way I'll explain this in just a second is that I think it's also kind of a slap in the face of what's going on here, saying that it didn't really accomplish much. So the way I would take Nephilim then is just a reference to a giant. And I would also take these Nephilim as the same group that's referred to at the end of chapter four, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, some people say that the Nephilim and the mighty men are different and that's possible. However, I think that that's a bit of a nonsensical understanding of the text because otherwise, if that's the case, if these are two separate groups, you're just kind of left with Nephilim being mentioned. And then all of a sudden you're talking about mighty men being mentioned and it really does not uh, coincide together. Well, it's just most natural to see them as a referent, a further referent to Nephilim. Uh, these being the Nephilim were the mighty men. Um, some people would say, Oh, these are the children. The children are distinct from the Nephilim. Well, that's, that's possible, but Again, you're, you're dealing with a sharp disconnect there that I'm not sure uh, is the best way to take the text. I mean, it's definitely possible, but 
I think that you lose a lot then because you have just this random mention on the Nephilim. Some people would say, oh, it's just a marker there to say what kind of time period we're talking about. But, you know, granted, I don't think that that's as strong as seeing the continuation in the description there. But I've been wrong once before, so it's it's possible. But I think it makes sense to see them both as the same reference. So now that we've talked about who the sons of God are and uh, who the Nephilim are, how do we understand this passage? What in the world is going on here? So I think there's a couple uh, observations we can make. So within the context here, we've already been talking about how Genesis 1 through 5 shows that mankind is in trouble. In fact, they're descending deeper into sin, Genesis 4. In fact, it shows that mankind, if they're left to themselves, they're going to be continually on this downward spiral. In fact, that continues on even after the flood. For, for example, right after the flood, you would, you would think, okay, man learned its lesson. But immediately you have Noah getting drunk and you have this incredible problem, which we've already done a podcast on, where, uh, you have Noah's son looking upon his nakedness and insulting his father and you go through all of that. Well, that's immediately after the flood with Noah and his family. So humanity continues to sin and then you get the Tower of Babel and just, Everything just continues to descend unless God is going to sovereignly, divinely intervene, which he does do in Genesis 12. It's almost as if he says, okay, enough is enough. You've proved my point. You guys are incapable of doing it on your own, and now I need to intercede. So I think Genesis 6 is a part of that downward spiral that would fit with the theme of Genesis 1 to 11, showing humanity's propensity to rebel and deny God and not just go about neutrally. No, not, not neutral at all, but to actually pursue an agenda against what God commands. Just like when God says, spread out and multiply, fill the earth at the end of the flood in Genesis nine. Well, what does humanity do? They say, let's gather together lest we, you know, be scattered. We need to create a name for ourselves. We'll gather together on the plain of Shinar. Well, I think that's similar to what's going on in Genesis six. You have humanity doing something uh, to demonstrate their sinfulness. And so what I would say makes most sense in the context there is that you have some sort of alliance or unity being made with fallen angels. I don't think this is the fall of angels. I think the fall of angels took place earlier, but uh, we're, we're not given any information on that. But here you see some sort of alliance between angels and, and mankind. In fact, there, there's no reference to rape here or forced marriages or any kind of overpowering or anything like that. This seems to be just a normal interaction of marriage and apparently human fathers willingly giving their daughters to angels. So what's, what's the whole point then? It seems, and we're not told here what the exact purpose of this is, but I think we can, you know, fill in the blanks a little bit, if you will. And there are a couple options. One, maybe they're trying to create some sort of alliance to overthrow God. That's possible. It's possible that they're trying to attain their own version of eternal life. Maybe they, they want to create some sort of super race where they, ha- they've created their own redemption, their own immortality, for example. If angels are immortal, maybe if they can uh, intermingle with angels, maybe they will become immortal. Maybe that's what's going on here. And that might, uh, that could be a understanding of why Genesis 6-3 is there. 
since it talks about man being flesh and drawing out that key distinction of man's uh, being or their essence. Though another option could be that the angels and the humans want to intermarry and create some sort of unredeemable race or irredeemable race. So in other words, maybe they're trying to thwart God's plan by creating some sort of hybrid angel-human race that has no soul or something like that. You know, it's we're not given all the exact details, but I don't think that this is beyond the realm of understanding of what's going on here. Any of those viable alternatives would help solidify why humanity is cannot be left on their own. Otherwise, they will continue to descend into this sinful spiral. So whatever this rebellion is, it requires a wiping out of humanity. So I don't think it's just intermarrying between uh, ungodly and godly individuals. I mean, that's definitely possible, but I don't think that that would merit destroying all of humanity. So this, it does seem to be on the level of what we're talking about here, some sort of alliance to overthrow God. And notice what the text says, and this is what, why I said it's kind of a slap in the face in verse 4. It mentions the Nephilim being on the earth in those days and also afterward. What I take that phrase to mean also afterward is that there were Nephilim that were on the earth in those days. They were part of the the progeny of the angelic human union, but the Nephilim were also afterwards. So in other words, the angels and the, and the humans, their, their alliance, their interrelationships accomplished nothing special. There was, there was nothing. In other words, I don't think as some people would say that God needed to wipe the slate clean because the human DNA was corrupt now or something like that. I don't think so. I think it's just saying that they didn't accomplish anything. There were giants before, there were giants after, they didn't accomplish anything special. But yet it's obviously the heart of man that is intent on this rebellion, this alliance with with the angels. And so that's what causes God to say, you know what, we need to judge this severely, right? And obviously the angels get judged too, because as we're told in Jude and Second Peter 2, those angels are relegated to some sort of special holding cell for angels. They don't, they're not given any, any freedom from that point on. And so I think that that's an important insight. And so when we think about that, you know, the question comes up, well, could this same sin of Genesis 6 happen today? Well, I think hypothetically it could, but I don't think it does. And the reason for that is because I think that if I'm an angel and I see I see God respond so dramatically to this and lock up all the offending angels who were involved in this, well, I kind of prize my freedom a little bit. And so I don't want to be locked up waiting the end, the final end judgment. And so I'm going to avoid doing this because I know what happened to the prior angels who did that. So I just don't see, uh, I don't see angels trying to do this because I think that they know what would happen to them. So, I mean, I, I just, I just find it hard to imagine that they would proceed because angels are smart. They're very wise and I, I don't see them going, going through that. So what would be the major big takeaways of this narrative in scripture? Well, I think the big one has to be that sin has consequences and the greater the sin, the greater the consequence. I mean, think about this. The consequence of this sin is that the entire humanity, apart from Noah and his family, are wiped out. And so this has to be uh, understood as 
really exemplifying the consequences of sin and just understanding that God is a holy God and he has to execute judgment on that. Now, the second thing I would say is that fallen angels desperately want to corrupt God's plan of salvation. Although I would be quick to add that that's not possible now because God's plan of salvation has been accomplished. Praise the Lord for that. God's plan has been accomplished, but now instead of wanting to corrupt God's plan of salvation, fallen angels would switch battle tactics, I'm uh, 100% sure in saying, and instead of trying to corrupt it since it's been accomplished, they want to confuse it or misdirect uh, away from it. So that's that's the plan of attack now. And then uh, finally, I would say that you have the coupled points of humanity's sin and inability being exemplified and God showing his justice and also his mercy, though, in justice in, in judging the sin, but then mercy and grace in not wiping out all of humanity. And all of humanity deserves death because of our sin. And so he would be just in doing that. But his grace and mercy are exemplified even more so, more boldly, through the template of judgment, if you want to think of it that way. And this is, I've talked about this over and over, but I think it's its worth mentioning once more. In, in humanity's sin and inability, I think comparing Genesis 6-5 and 8-21 is important. Because in 6-5... This is kind of the segue into why God floods the earth. Verse 5, it says that God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God sees that you know mankind is terrible. And although it might be tempting, this is not a statement of the depravity of man because it's talking about this specific time period. But... When you get to the end of chapter 8, this is uh, this is the, I guess you could say, the exclamation point in verse 21. So when Noah, at the end of the flood, gets off the boat, he offers his sacrifice and the Lord smells it. And the Lord says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now that statement after the flood solidifies what we saw before the flood. So in other words, on both sides of the flood, God's saying mankind is the same. They are, they are still evil. And I think that that's important as we read through Genesis 1 to 11, because it's showing us that mankind is hopeless. They are unable on their own to affect any sort of plan of salvation. They need divine intervention, which is going to come in Genesis 12, just as God had promised in Genesis 3.15. And so it's a, it's a very powerful story when we understand it from the, from the literature perspective on how Genesis 1 to 11 is trying to portray the sinfulness of man, the inability of man, and then obviously exalting and exemplifying the ultimate mercy of God in saving humanity. So I hope that's helpful for you. I hope it's clear as mud in many ways. Uh, I, I love thinking through these passages in Genesis 1 to 11. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture and love to hear any comments or questions you have about uh, this passage or any other ones. You can reach out to me at peter at petergaiman.com. If you want more information about me, you can visit the site petergaiman.com. If you want more information about the school that I teach at Shepherd's Theological Seminary, you can visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.